Hi, I'm Dr. Eric Hanberg, and I'm a forensic pathologist and medical examiner, and this is Becoming a Medical Examiner. On this podcast, I talk to other medical examiners, forensic pathologists, and I find out what it was like for them becoming a medical examiner, what it was like in the process of becoming a medical examiner, and what it's like for them now that they're actually doing this job. And today, I'm joined by Dr. Deland Wyrock. Deland, can you introduce yourself? I'm Dr. Deland Wyrock, and I'm also a forensic pathologist and medical examiner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, hey, you know what? That is how I sound. That's fair. Tell me, so where are you practicing now? I am now practicing in Billings, Montana. I work for the Montana State Medical Examiner's Office. That's so cool, man. Have, wait, what made you want to go to Montana? Sorry to jump ahead, but what made you want to go to Montana? Yeah, I'm originally from North Dakota. My wife is also originally from North Dakota. So we're from the area. Um, my wife is from Mandan which is right next to Bismarck, which is the capital. And like a lot of state capitals, it's sort of centrally located in North Dakota. I'm from the northwestern part of North Dakota, um, which was kind of famous in the early 2010s for being the Bakken, this big um, oil field where a lot of people were moving there to work in the oil field. But it's right up in that wedge right around Montana and Canada, five or six hour drive away from where we live, where we're from. But we're relatively close to home. And also I work with, uh, the chief medical examiner for the state of Montana is Dr. Willie Kemp. And I was one of his medical students at the University of North Dakota. Oh, really? So the chief medical examiner who I work with was one of my medical school professors. Oh, that's so cool, man. That's really interesting. Well, okay. So I'll get, I'll get us back on track a little bit. So um, one of the things that I always encounter when I tell people what I do and I say, I'm a medical examiner is they go, what, what are you talking about? What is that? How do you, how do you explain what it is that we do? So I knew that you were going to ask this, Eric, because I have become a big fan of your podcast and that's kind of where I want to start. If I may, I've listened to all the episodes so far, you know, you and I know each other a little bit in real life. Um, but man, you just do such a good job with this podcast. Everybody who's a medical examiner who you've talked to just it, when I listen to it, like it just makes me proud and excited. And it, the first episode too, where you interviewed yourself, like, I just really like this podcast. So I kind of know like the, most of the questions that you're going to ask me that you ask to everybody. And so I did a couple of things that I'm not sure if your other guests have done when they have known that they're going to be interviewed by you. The first is that I've kind of prepared a few answers oh, really? prepared to be interviewed by you. And the other thing is um, I've, I've started drinking a little bit of wine. I'm a little bit into the wine tonight, Aaron. So <laughs> it also fine. gives me an automatic, like it loosens it up a little bit. But I also like an out in case I don't sound as smart as everybody you've interviewed so far. I can just go, oh, well, I was a little, you know, uh, so to answer that, because you've had guests explain so well, like Patrick did a great job of this. Um, Samantha Champion did a great job of like, there's, there's kind of a, a basic response to your family member, your friend, a total stranger. Oh, you're a medical examiner. You're a forensic pathologist. What does that mean? What do you do? And it's like, well, we, uh, there's kind of an intellectual aspect to it where we investigate deaths. And then there's more of a, practical part of it where we perform autopsies and that is the majority of what we do kind of the mental part of it and then the physical part of it and then there's also the answer of well we we, we determine cause and manner of death and this is what cause and manner of death is so you've already had guests who have done a great job 
explaining those answers and explaining the answers that we would give. Also, if we were in court and explaining what we do to a jury, sure. I thought it might be interesting to go through some of the cases that as a forensic pathologist or a medical examiner, we must do, like we must take these types of cases. And this is a significant part of the work in the caseload that we do as doctors, as forensic pathologists. Oh, so sure. That's a great idea. There are, some, there are some types of cases, ways that people die, that according to the National Association of Medical Examiners in sort of their autopsy standards, like these are the cases verbatim. It is the forensic pathologist shall perform a forensic autopsy when the death is known or suspected to have been caused by apparent criminal violence. So that's a lot of what we do is suspicious deaths or deaths where by suspicion, they mean there might be something criminal involved in this. And this is why, you know, people who help us investigate deaths, their profession, they're called medical legal death investigators, because a lot of the cases that we work on, there might be some sort of legal aspect to what we do for autopsies. And I, and I think this is interesting to, for people who are thinking about becoming medical examiners or don't know what medical examiners do to hear the types of deaths that sort of like, again, the people who set out the standards for what we do say, you know, like you must insert yourself here. You must get involved in this death of this person. But there's another part of the litany, which is who are you? So one of the reasons that we might perform an autopsy is to identify somebody. And if remains, human remains are skeletonized, all the soft tissue is gone, and are just left with a human skeleton or a body is so badly burned that it's just the whole out, outside of the person's body charred and unrecognizable. Those are reasons where, again, name says you shall do an autopsy because how are you certain or have you done the due diligence to assess who this person is if you're going to sign their death certificate if you can't really identify the body? And another one is, um, that we might do an autopsy just to identify somebody if there's a, if the identity of the person is in question. And then there's one about uh, motor vehicle incidents and autopsies necessary to document the injuries or determine the cause of death. And then there's kind of a catch-all, which is B3.12. The forensic pathologist deems a forensic autopsy is necessary to determine cause and manner of death or document injuries slash disease or collect evidence. So that one kind of is like, a, here you go. If you run a medical examiner's office and you really want to do an autopsy, this is almost a, a catch-all to say, at your discretion, you know, a medical examiner, you have the ability to perform an autopsy without permission. That's also one of the essential components of having a medical examiner's office if you're in a medical examiner state, which is a little different from a coroner state, but that's kind of a whole different question in itself. Yeah. In hearing you list it off, it kind of reminds me that my my way I describe it is usually that I'm a, a doctor that performs autopsies for unexpected or suspicious deaths. But I did leave out that that doesn't address the one you talked about, where I should also say sudden uh, unexpected or suspicious deaths of known persons or any deaths in someone we don't know who it is. And I think that that's reasonable. That's actually a reasonably big part of the job, I think. Yeah, I think it, a reasonably big part of the job is just confirming or having, if we get involved with it, providing some kind of scientific or objective evidence 
that this person is who it is stated that they are. And so we have different ways of doing that. Obviously, DNA is a big one and one that uh, I think a lot of the lay population knows about. But there's some other cool tricks with ID too. Doing x-rays is really helpful in seeing if they have any um, medical implants or medical devices, mm-hmm. anything that's radiolucent in their body uh, that, that would be consistent with the person's medical history or some other history about them. Um, tattoos are one on the outside of the body. Going back to x-rays, their skeletal features, like their frontal sinuses, the air cavities in their skull can actually be really unique to individual people. And especially if you have someone who you suspect the body to be, and you have a former a previous CT scan or an X-ray of that person's head, and then if you do an X-ray on your decedent's body at autopsy, and you compare their sinuses, uh, their air spaces in their skull, and those two are a match, that's a really strong circumstantial and sort of scientific identification that, like, yes, the person who we think it is and the person we have at the autopsy like this, this matches, we can identify this person positively. Yeah. That's so funny, man. I think this is probably the most direct talk about the science of what we do that I've ever done on the podcast, because usually I just sort of get into the story of the people, but, but you're right. I think that the people who listen to this podcast are probably pretty interested in the job itself too, but I am going to ask you, what was it like for you? Like, when did you know you wanted to do this job or say, any job in medicine? Like, tell me about how you came to know about forensic pathology. I had a thought in high school at some point, like, I think I was just in our our little school library and I came across some book and I can't remember if it was about physics or radiation or like maybe it was chemistry and atoms. It was something sciencey. And I was just thinking like, I don't, because at that point I had no idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. I didn't really grow up, grow up, knowing what I wanted to do. And I'm sitting here in high school. I have no idea when it was, if I was a freshman or a senior, but I just remember thinking like, well, some people are doctors. Can I be a doctor? I mean, the sciencey stuff, that's what physicians do, right? And then I thought about it for maybe like that afternoon and I kind of concluded like, no, I can't be a doctor. Like doctors are really smart people. I'm not smart enough to be a doctor. Um, And then I went to when I started college and I went directly from high school into college, I started as, uh, I believe this is what one of your other guests was. I think it was Dr. Callahan might've been pre-physical therapy or physical therapy focused when she started college. And that was me too. Um, I was, I was an athlete and I was interested in, I was interested enough in the human body to think that maybe I wanted to do something with human anatomy and physiology for a career but I was pre-physical therapy. But of course, when you start college, you take a lot of general classes. And I was just kind of doing well enough in my general classes that I thought, maybe I should do a pre-med focus and just see if it works. Like if I'm I'm liking my classes, I'm getting good enough grades, maybe I should just shoot for that. And if it doesn't work, I can fall to something else. My wife is, is a physical therapist and she always makes fun of me when I talk like this because she's like, no, you weren't smart enough to be a physical therapist <laughs> where you went pre-med. And she's probably right about that. Um, but I, that's what I did. And, and you know, I, I kind of feel like a lot of my career path, in quotation marks, has been just picking 
things that I've vaguely been interested in or thought I could do and just seeing if it works out. And then, and then it is like medicine becoming a doctor and especially becoming a subspecialized doctor takes so long that it is, it ends up being like 15 to 20 years. I feel like in my experience of just like gradually imperceptibly ending up somewhere. And yeah. I ended up being a, a pathologist and a medical examiner. So here's the thing. So I have a, a bunch of questions to ask, but about that, I feel like that that is how it usually goes. And I actually think that's a good thing. I like it. I, that's the advice I always give to pre-meds is to f- just focus on the next step. Don't think about what you want to retire as. I want to be the chief of pediatric cardiothoracic surgery at this hospital in Philadelphia. That That's fine. Like that's a reasonable thing to sort of dream about once in a while. But actually going through the process, I think you're much better served and I think you have a better time and end up a better doctor if you focus on whatever the next immediate step is. So rather than, you know, I want to be that person, just just start with I want to be a doctor. Ideally, Mm -hmm. I want to be a good doctor. And then once you get to be in med school and you're feeling it out, then I think it's reasonable to say, like, I want to be a gynecologist or I want to be a neurosurgeon or I want to be a pathologist. And then once you figure out that you want to be a pathologist and it's fine to be like, I want to be a pathologist specifically because I really liked autopsy or I really liked the histology side of, of, of pathology. That's fine. But if you focus on that next step, then when you're doing residency, you're thinking, I want to be a good pathologist. I think that it makes residency more fun. I also think that it makes taking the boards a hell of a lot easier because you were able to focus on learning that stuff. And then you're going to become, I mean, forensic pathology fellowship is a good time to learn how to become a forensic pathologist. And I think that slowly guiding your pathway thing, I think that makes you a better doctor and it probably gives people a lot more fulfillment because they give themselves a chance to learn about everything, you know? As usual, I resonate with everything you just said. And yet it's so interesting, isn't it? Because at the same time, like I recognize that that is the way that I feel like emotionally and cognitively that I jive with that. But then I listen to your podcast and here's Patrick Hansman being like, I wanted to be a forensic pathologist when I was five and I was walking (laughs) around in graveyard and he made it happen. And the entire time he was like focused and knew that he was going to be specifically a forensic pathologist, did everything in his life to just make that happen. And then look at him. He's just, I've never met him, but he seems like he's killing it. You know, he seems like he is just so, has such a passion for what he does and he's so good at it and everything has worked out for him. And so there's many different avenues that that is kind of the way that I've always approached it. And I definitely, the thing that I most agree with, I agree with everything you said, but the part about before you can be a forensic pathologist, you have to be, you have to become a doctor. And that is just such a, uh, there's so much meaning to becoming a doctor and the process of that it completely changes, again, in my opinion, my experience, it changes who you are as a person. And um, again, probably there's quite a few people in your audience who listen to this podcast who want, they're they're in the pre-doctor phase of their life, but they want to become a doctor and one day they they will become doctors. And so for the readers out there, anybody interested, I just, I just picked a couple of books that, um, 
I really appreciated and, and really think are good for people to read if they are interested in becoming a doctor or even are interested in the lives of doctors. Um, one of them is a book called How Doctors Think. It's by Jerome Groupman. It's called How Doctors Think. And this is something that is spoken of very highly by a pathologist who was my attending in residency. And he's a, um, he specializes in genital urinary pathology. And he loves this book. He would just recite all these lessons from this book to us. There's a lot of, um, it's written for the lay audience, but it's very much appreciated by people in the medical field. Like it's been reviewed by the New England Journal of Medicine and the Journal of the American Medical Association. Uh, but it's written so that anybody can understand it. So I think it's really a good book to read if you're a, a person who's not yet a doctor who wants to become a doctor. It talks about the thought processes of of how doctors arrive at diagnoses and the pitfalls in that sort of cognitive biases and the way in which you think sort of like, and I it, the reason I think it's a really great book to read is because I find that you do think one way all throughout high school and college and even medical school. It's very like logical and analytical and there's right answers and wrong answers. Um, and you sort of like take all this information, you try to synthesize it. And, but, but then residency starts and you are a doctor and you are actually seeing patients and taking on real life cases. And the way that you think when you become a doctor is completely different than the way that you think up to that point. So much of it becomes pattern recognition and like instincts. And I've seen this before, or I've heard stories about this before. Um, like I think it's just really enlightening. And it's a really fascinating read. The other is more about the emotional uh, and the narrative aspect of becoming a doctor. And that's called, when the Air Hits Your Brain by Frank Bernstein Jr. It's uh, subtitled Tales from Neurosurgery. So even if you're not a neurosurgeon, I certainly am not. I could never, I, I would have bailed out in five minutes if I had to be a neurosurgeon. It would take, it would take somebody a thousand years to make me into a competent neurosurgeon. I'm like <laughs> confident about that. Did you, I can't but, remember um, if it was in the, one of the podcasts, but did I, did I ever tell you that I, that's what I thought I was going to do when I first went to medical school? Yes. Yeah. I think this is from one of your podcasts. Oh, yeah. Thank God I didn't do that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but he, he, uh, he tells some stories and yeah, it, it's also, it, there are dark parts of it, but it's written overall pretty lightheartedly. Actually. Um, just when you become a doctor, another thing you start to appreciate is the responsibility and the weight of your actions and all of your decisions and what that means for how you live, how you sleep, um, the toll that it takes on your loved ones, your, your spouse, your kids, your parents, your friends. And um, again, just the way that it changes your perspective on life. I think it's a really good book for that. I can't, it's been a while since I've read it. It was written in like 1996 or something. I can't remember how much of it is sort of like outdated in the sense of like, oh, the, the, well, that is just does not happen in medicine anymore. Like, you know, that's 
I, I can't remember who it was on your podcast said, oh yeah, this person like walked in, they did a whole autopsy without wearing gloves and they were smoking a cigarette the whole time. <laughs> you know, like this Harrison Martlin stuff from the twenties or something. I can't remember how many of those stories are in that book, but it really, I, I think anyone who goes to medical school, applies to medical school, gets in, they're on the road. Like you said, once you're in medical school, if, unless things go very wrong, you're going to be a doctor. And, um, it's just, it's worth knowing like the emotional gravity that that's going to, that that is going to have on who you are as a person. So those would be my two, uh, recommendations for the book club, Eric. Well, I <laughs> think those are great recommendations. I actually have not read either of them and it does make me feel a little bad because, uh, the most recent book I've read was a recommendation from one of my autopsy texts. And, uh, I had seen a lot of, a lot of stuff about this book online, um, that people were raving about. It was such a good book and there were lines to buy it. And there was going to be a, uh, you know, number two in the series was coming out soon. And she said it was great. And so I went out and bought and, uh, well, I should say I, I audible audio book, read the book fourth wing. Do you know what that book is? I do not. It turns out that it's, it's like a, uh, it's like a fantasy world with, with dragons kind of vaguely hunger games esque, but it is more or less like soft erotica written for teenage girls. <laughs> and I, I just wanted to make a formal note that I have in fact read that book and it is due to my autopsy tech. And so your book recommendations were great, but you know, I get my own recommendations. So yeah, to each their own, right? I couldn't agree more. Are you, so you mentioned, and, and this is something that has come up a bunch of times is that the people who listen to this podcast and also the people who know me from TikTok or honestly, a lot of the people on the Reddit, they're, they're pre-med and a lot of them are pre pre-med. So high school students who plan on being pre-med and they have a lot of questions and you know, I wasn't, I wasn't there in high school. I was, I think I stopped rollerblading in college. You know what I mean? I was kind of a slow, slow <laughs> learner. And because of that, I, I don't know what it feels like to be pre pre-med, but what, what were you like in high school? Were you, you know, were you valedictorian and you were on your way to med school no matter what or so I've really been excited to shout out to where I'm from and what school I went to. I went to Ray High School, Ray, North Dakota, the northwestern part of North Dakota. And I did, I, I believe I was either valedictorian or tied for valedictorian in my class of 14 people. Oh my God. <laughs> so I, I think I have, the, I, I think I have your record, Eric, and I hope nobody breaks it. I, I, I think it might've been Dr. Callahan maybe was from a pretty small town. Yeah. She was, was from like, a small town. I, oh yeah. That's a very beat. small town. I think she said she's from like a town of 30,000 people. I'm like, that's where we went grocery shopping and for like field trips. <laughs> uh, that's where we went to go to the big stores was our neighboring town of 30,000 people. Oh my uh, Ray, God. North Dakota, when I was there, had 530 people in it. Oh, Dylan. And have I told you I about shouted, Mississippi? I no, I don't think so. Okay, tell me about you your have. high school, but then I'm telling you about Potts Camp, Mississippi. Okay, okay. So, again, shout out. I loved going there. I loved all the teachers. It's a, I loved Ray, North Dakota. Um, but, you know, they... I mean, you walk around, you're in a class that it was, when we started, we were nine people and we grew to 14. So throughout all of elementary school, junior high, high school, 
we all just walked around together and we're in literally the exact same, everyone had the same class schedule. There's no like you're in this section of this or, you know, you weren't in the same grade as people, but in different classes, like you just walked around as the same group of nine to 14 people all 13 years. And so there wasn't like, Oh, these people are advanced. They take this cool science or math class. Like, and for the teachers, what that meant is, you know, it's like, I, I can only imagine I'm, I'm transporting my mind into my teacher's minds growing up, which isn't something you should ever do. But I just, I can only imagine that like you kind of got to teach right down the middle, you know, there's going to, there's the kids who kind of struggle with picking up concepts and who need more attention and the kids who picked up on things pretty quickly. And I mean, I, I, trying to speak as sort of a third person or objectively as I can about myself, you know, I, I've been really lucky. I feel like throughout my life, I have, I don't think it's a, you know, to be a a doctor, to be successful in that whole, you know, get into medical, get great grades, get into medical school, do all the stuff. You have to have a certain, like you can process information this fast. Your memory, your recall of information is, this good. Like there's kind of a minimum bar for that. And so I've, I've had that my whole life. I hear things and I, they kind of go into my brain and they stay there for quite a while. And like, I, I have a decent memory and I can, you know, think analytically with an IQ enough to be able to be good at school. I've always had that. And, um, so I think, you know, in the classes, like I picked up on things for it and I think it was, I think the whole time that I was at Ray high school, uh, again, I imagine that if you're a teacher, you kind of take those kids and you're like, good, those kids are going to be fine. Let me, you know, try to get the entire class or the average of the class as best as I can so that nobody's falling really far behind. Mm -hmm. And, um, and everybody's taking the same classes. So, you know, I, I, there was no, there was no like dedicated, cool anatomy class or physiology class. Like, everybody's stirring sugar into the boiling up water to see how much you can dissolve it for the, for the science class. And so how did you get, how did you get so interested in anatomy then when you were in college, if you didn't have, I mean, your class of 14, how, how, like, how did you find out you were that interested in anatomy and that you thought you were going to do physical therapy? How did that come about? I was in Minot, North Dakota. How many people live in Minot? I think like 50,000 people. So a huge city. <laughs> Massive. And, um, I was at the Barnes and Noble and I thought I was just walking around the different areas and I saw a book that caught my eye and it was an anatomy and physiology book, like a one that is kind of, it seemed like it was geared towards maybe high school kids or maybe even like, you know, someone, it wasn't an advanced book by any means. It had like, big colorful pictures and computer generated dioramic things. And, and it was kind of, but it was a good introduction for me. I got, and I was like, Oh man, you know, will my parents buy this for me? And they did. And uh, I really got into that book. Like I sat like a lot of nights, I would just sit down and I would might, I might be watching TV, but I would have that book like on my lap and I would just flip through it. And it's like, Oh, that's, what hepatocytes look like in the liver and whoa, they've got these little, like, can this guy, they got this little canal system through the liver. And I just, that really interested me. And I always thought maybe if I end up being pre-physical therapy or pre-health sciences or something like that, like 
sitting down and reading this book a lot will help me, you know, like become that one day. Hmm. So that, I mean, that book probably helped me. That was my first, that was the first thing in my life that sent me in a direction of like an actual pragmatic career as opposed to like, I'm going to be in the movies or I'm going to be a professional athlete, you know, like a, an actual real profession. That book was probably the first thing in my life that put me on that course other than maybe like reading uh, Dilbert, the Dilbert comic strip and thinking I should be in HR because of Catbird, the evil director of HR in, uh, in uh, the Dilbert comic strip. Well, the first book I remember putting me on a path was a book, a book called act now. Oh God, I think that's what it was called. And it was by a, a guy who at the time it felt like he really had the credentials to tell you how to be like a working actor because he was an extra in the movie, the mask with Jim Carrey. And to me, I was like, if you've been anywhere near Jim Carrey, you're good, you're gold, you know? And I read his book and, uh, the only thing I remember is that at one point it said, you have to be willing to take risks. So right now, close the book, go next door and ask your neighbor to borrow a pair of socks. And I, I literally did. I closed the book, borrowed some socks. And then I was like, mom and dad, I'm moving to Hollywood. And I moved to Hollywood the next day. So that's how my life started. And then I ended up in medicine, you know? So we've both been heavily influenced by particular books. <laughs> yep. This is actually... You and I also share something that you know I'm, I was going to bring up if you weren't, Eric. We are very particular kinds of people in this world because both you and I have ventured into stand-up comedy. I Actually, I was not. I didn't think to bring that up. But, yeah, that's true. That is uh, that is pretty unique, I think. How would you start that? Yeah, when, when did you start that? I don't know if this is the same for you, uh, my, how I got into it and started doing it, it's all just a blur now. I, I don't even remember like the re I think it might be one of those artistic things where you have an artistic feeling and you're like, I just, you know, I'm a vain person who thinks I should be famous and I really want to do this. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know if it, that's the motivation for all artists or if that was just my experience. But um, the reason why I thought it would actually be interesting to bring up is because I feel like it's helped me in my life as a forensic pathologist and a doctor. I really do. I really believe that. And I don't know if you feel the same way um, with your, you know, going to Hollywood, doing stand-up comedy. I, a lot of what we do is as medical examiners is we testify a lot. You know, we have to, we do still have a spotlight on us, but it's when we're in court instead of being with a microphone up on a stage. And I, I think that the skills First of all, to do stand-up comedy, you have to, and every person who is a stand-up comedian will go through certain experiences involving public speaking. You will be, you're going to bomb, you're going to feel humiliated in front of a bunch of people. You might also have some success and, go, and that motivates you to get better at your craft. But then also stand-up comedy, so much of it, no. I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on stand-up generally, Eric. We've never talked about this, but you know, I I think I feel like a principle of stand-up comedy is that no one is going to laugh at your jokes or laugh with you if they don't like you. Nobody laughs at somebody or with somebody who they don't like. So that one of the most important things to being a stand-up is that you have to get people to like you almost instantly as soon as you go up there. You have to figure out 
with the way that I speak or my demeanor or the words that I say, like it all has to come together, a cadence and an intonation and inflection. Like I have to, I have such a short amount of time to get people to trust me, believe me and like who I am as a person. And then they'll laugh with me. And I feel like there's a lot of analogies to testifying in court to a judge and a jury. Yeah. So, I mean, I totally agree with you. I do want to preface by saying there was a time in my life when I would feel comfortable talking as a stand-up comedian, but instead now I'll just talk as someone who really appreciates stand-up comedy. And I, I have for a long time and I, I did do it for a while. Um, and I think I got a lot of skills out of it, but one of the skills I did not get was being a stand-up comedian. I never really was good at it, but I did learn a lot about myself and, and some confidence uh, stuff, just feeling comfortable speaking in a microphone, things like that. And I agree with you that there's a lot that you can learn from it. I think for me, one of the biggest things was if you're just honest and you try to communicate whatever it is that you feel like you want to say, most of the time people appreciate that. It doesn't have to be really profound every time. You don't have to have the perfect words. You just have to be able to express yourself. And I think I got some of that from stand-up comedy, watching people work out bits, feeling, feeling my own bits out. And, you know, you write it down, you try to memorize it, you go up on stage and say something totally different and it works. And you're like, well, maybe I should have written that first. And you try it again and it doesn't, you know, it's, it's a, it's a practice thing. And I think it just made me feel a little more comfortable speaking, you know, sort of train of thought speaking. And I actually, in a weird coincidence, I was telling my dad, I I had a phone call with my dad. I call him every day on the way to work because he lives in Denmark. And so when I leave at seven in the morning, it's three in the afternoon or something for him. And so I get a chance to call him and I was telling him I'm going to do a podcast today. And I mentioned that you were a stand up comedian or you had been in the past and that I thought that it really came across when you gave your talk at name. Oh, by the way, in case it hasn't come up in the past name is the national association of medical examiners, which was a conference that both Dylan and I were recently at and Dylan gave a wonderful talk that was very well received. And I was so impressed, man. I was so impressed at the way you handled it. I think people, I agree with you. They, they, it, it did make you seem very likable right away. And I think people, I still remember you, you were talking about, um, somebody, a case that you had where someone had fallen and you said, and then my attendings asked me, well, how does someone have a ground level fall and break their skull Deland? And you said, you said it just like that. And it got a laugh even from me too. But I was like, see now that that's such a confidence thing to feel comfortable. That's a little self-deprecating and it was delivered so well. And I feel like it, it really made people remember and appreciate your talk. And I had other people that didn't know I knew you come up and tell me how much they liked your talk. Oh my God. Uh, if you could see me blush right now, <laughs> I thank you for saying that, Eric. I, I that means a lot to me. Um, I thought that talk went really well too. I thought I did a pretty good job, but, uh, and, and I think that this confidence, yeah, these concepts that we're talking about with public speaking and being a little bit self-deprecating. And I think it not just when you're testifying, but so much of what we do is communicating with other people, whether it be other doctors, um, the police, detectives, the legal system, public health officials, people who work with vital statistics and vital records. Uh, I think that you're effective that being smart is 
not the most important part of what we do. It's just not. It's way more important to be um, available and affable than it is to be a really smart person. You can you can be really intelligent and just good at the procedural aspects of the job. Um, but if you can't, if you, if you do a poor job communicating with all the people who we need to communicate and work with, you're just not going to be that effective or great or outstanding as a forensic pathologist. And again, I think this applies to doctors generally. Um, I agree. Yeah, I totally I, agree. That applies to doctors generally in particular, I, I think, and I mean, I'll give a, a little nod, a little sort of self-embarrassed nod to having done some improv in the past. And I think the thing I took from improv comedy was the importance of listening. And that's something I think that all doctors can benefit a lot from being able to communicate well, but especially being able to listen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember when you said that you, I have not done improv, but I remember you saying that you have done improv and I was like, this makes so much sense because for your listeners who obviously if this is the what seventh or whatever podcast of Eric Hanberg's medical examiner podcast that you're listening to, you probably like Eric quite a bit. Like what I if do. they're just at home, but just people, boiling over with hate, they can't stand me, but they're like, <laughs> I have to listen. I want to know, but damn this guy. I have the habit of underestimating how many people hate watch things. So you might, you might be onto something. I bet there's a lot of people <laughs> though, who watch it, who genuinely like you. And if you've never, people who have never met you in real life, like you're at the main meetings and a lot of what you're doing are sort of like social media things for the committee or with a camera and all of your um, audio visual expertise, like you're, you're recording people, you're interviewing people, you do a lot of what you do on this podcast, but with other unsuspecting people who you try to <laughs> yeah, coach. Surprise. Into, you know, exactly. Um, but to watch you do it in person is just like, when you said that you do improv, it just clicked with me. Like, that's why he's so good at this because you think on your feet so well, you always, you always have like a next sentence that sounds like it is made to be there. Um, at like any moments, like it, so it comes through just like whatever you might say that you were never became a good standup, you know, you failed at whatever, but I'm telling you, you clearly learn stuff from like this improv. I mean, it just shows in the work that you do. And that's why I'm kind of a supporter of trying things that are um, artistic, whether it's like creative writing or acting in a play or theater or something like that debate team. Uh, because I think that these skills really translate to probably most of the, the jobs that you'll have in your life. Um, if those jobs involve working with other people at all Dealing, or, you, you know, know, even getting job, getting the job in the first place. You know what, man, if you want to turn this podcast into you giving me a bunch of compliments, I'll let it happen. <laughs> Trust me. It, it's great. And I appreciate it, but I am going to keep asking you questions about how you became a medical examiner. Cause I think, you know, people, you're right. People have, if they've listened to the other podcasts, they've definitely heard enough of me and my random stories, but they haven't heard enough from I you. I don't think that's true, but, uh, <laughs> but go ahead. We'll have to agree to disagree. So tell me where'd you, so you went to your, for, actually, this was one of my questions and I don't want to forget cause I am curious. So you went to school with 14 people. Do you know what they're doing? Do you still talk to them? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, I mean, three of the people I graduated with high school were, 
three of the people in my groom's party. At, oh, wow. Um, at her wedding. So I, I know there's still some of my best friends I've ever had. And just everyone's um, a medical examiner. Wouldn't that be something? That would be you know, crazy. Some people, some people, because I have ended up being in the medical field and medical school and residency and stuff, they hear that I graduated with a class of 14 people. And they're like, did you go to some weird, I don't even know. Did you go to some parochial school or like, I, they use these terms of like schools that I've never known about or heard of where they think I went to some like, I don't know, weird private boarding school or something. But it's like, no, like I, <laughs> the people who I graduated with, um, one of them, I'm going to name check these people just because Do I it. love you all so much. Daniel Johnson is uh, living in New York city in Brooklyn he, uh, he is a successful actor and has gone on to do, uh, he's also very talented in music as well. Sure. I know Dan, um, but he's super, <laughs> he's super talented. And he did like this acting apprenticeship in Louisville, like this prestigious acting fellowship. And he is a musician and does acting and does lots of different ventures and creates content and stuff in New York city. Um, he's, he's my best friend. He's the person who was the best man in uh, our wedding. And then just some other people, again, who I've got particularly close relationships with, uh, Brian Vile. He works in the state that I work in. He works in uh, Bozeman, Montana. He is a civil engineer. And then Daniel Anderson uh, flies Apache helicopters, or at least at one point did. I don't know if he's still, he, he's trained to fly Apache helicopters for the Army. I believe he transferred from the Marines to the army so he is in the military and he's a pilot and so like i, I but i think that again, i figured I, he was in the military when you said apache helicopters he's not flying apaches yeah. for fedex you know <laughs> you get you know a lot of so much of life is just luck and a lot of things that i a lot of times when i tell people again who find out where i'm from they ask me what it was like i was like it really was a product of circumstance or I feel that a lot of it was a product product of circumstance when you come from such a, such a small town and small school, if you end up with 10 or 11 people in your class who you do everything with, who you really like, it's awesome. It's like the best time ever because you spend all day together all the time and you do all the activities and the sports and you just, you're around each other like 18 hours a day and it's, and it's the best time ever. But if you, don't like your classmates. Like you get in a class who you don't really go, I I can just be awful. It can be terrible. And I'm really glad that I'm the former of that and not the latter, because I feel like I got in with a group of friends as a young kid that, you know, pushed me to, you know, excel and do extracurricular things. And, um, my English teacher, who's the mom of Daniel Johnson, Angela Johnson, uh, she's the English teacher throughout my entire high school experience. And she, coaxed me and got me into doing a speech and that really opened me up in terms of my public speaking. So, I mean, you just, you know, you just get lucky sometimes. A lot of life is luck and circumstance and obviously doing your part to make the most of the opportunities you're given. But uh, I was lucky enough to have some of my best friends be, you know, like a really successful performer, a really successful civil engineer and a really successful uh, Apache helicopter pilot, you know, like those are the people I grew up with. So, so did I'm, you guys I'm all go really to college lucky. together too? 
that would have been awesome. I wanted that to happen and uh, failed in creating that. Um, we all went to different, co- well, uh, Daniel went into the military straight out of high school, but, but then the rest of us, we all went to different colleges. So where'd you go to college? University of Mary, which is a very small school in Bismarck, North Dakota. Uh, I think there's typically like 4,000 people enrolled at any given time. So it's like an, it's like a freshman class of like a thousand people. Okay. And so, and that's also in North Dakota. Now did your, was that pretty close to where you were? I don't, I, you know, I'll be honest earlier when you were talking about how you ended up where you are now and how you are from North Dakota, I, w- I was using context to guess where North Dakota is, but my geography is pretty poor. So can you tell me, is that close to where you grew up that college? About three hours. Yeah. Three hours away by driving. Okay. So, you know, college, which we class, consider, yeah. which, yeah, we consider pretty close. I mean, like I said, I ended up um, doing residency and fellowship in Connecticut. And I, then I started to appreciate how different, like, geography and distances are for different people in the United States, because some people think three hours is like eight States Mm -hmm. and three hours is like a very close in-state drive for what I'm used to. So what was that like? So you, I mean, when you went to res or I guess medical school, wait, where'd you go to medical school? University of North Dakota in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Okay. So you were close to home all the way through medical school then. Correct. Yep. So yep. what was it like when you, when you left home? I mean, that, that's effectively leaving home for the first time in a serious way, right? Unless you did some sort of fellowship or something somewhere. Did you, was that the first time you really left home was when you went to residency? It was, it was the first time really leaving home. And that's part of the match process. I guess part of it also was that I ended up being in pathology and pathology, um, places that have pathology residency programs, they tend to be in bigger cities. Like if you wanted to do family medicine residency, you could stay in North Dakota, Mm -hmm. but North Dakota, actually the entire state has zero pathology residencies. The closest would have been, I believe, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And from where I live, like where I'm from in Ray, that's like, uh, geez, what is it? I had 10 hours, maybe. Is it? Yeah, it's like ten hours or something drive. Okay, from where so I'm it wouldn't from. have it wouldn't have so felt I like being home be, anyway. It wouldn't really have felt like being home, even if I picked literally the closest pathology residency program. So you know, you enter the match, you rank places, you end up where you match to, and um, we ended up in Connecticut. And but I went there with my wife Stephanie, so I wasn't going alone, which helped a lot. And we were both from North Dakota, so it you know when we had time off, we kind of knew like, yeah, once a year, we're going to be going back and visiting family in North Dakota. And then, um, but yeah, yeah, that was my first time really being away from home. See, that sounds like such a crazy experience to me. So you go from, from, I mean, true, true small town life in North Dakota and you kind of hang out there and then you get to the part of your life that I think most of us would consider one of the most time consuming, stressful uh, periods of our life. And in particular, it's the time when I think we're, you know, the most aggressively learning and you do that the, for the first time being away from your family, how was residency? Yeah. I, in a way it ends up being, and maybe I like to get, you know, your reaction to this. It kind of is a little bit of a blessing in that 
residency ends up being so time consuming and so busy and it's so much of your life that I, I feel like it almost would have been a little bit more complicated if I was doing residency in North Dakota, because then there's still this expectation that you're around and you, Oh, yeah, so you're going to be at Thanksgiving and Christmas and new year's and you know, uncle Bob's, you know, bar, uh, you know, birthday party or whatever. But it's like, no, you residency is so busy. And when you get time off, usually a lot of it is like, you want to do something for yourself or recuperate or just relax or just get away to have some time for yourself maybe, or some time like I'm married. So like with your significant other that, uh, you being, I, I feel like if I would have been in residency really close to home, it would have made things even a little bit more complicated being geographically removed. It was more of an understood thing. Like, Oh, well you live far enough away that, yeah, like we kind of expect as your, as family and friends that, you might only be back one time a year because you're busy doing doctor training and you're far away. So I, in, in some ways I feel like it simplified things a little bit in that I'm living in this different place. Um, you know, we have friends where we live now that being in Connecticut or at the time, um, you know, there's people who we have made friends with in Connecticut who we like hanging out with, but it's not the same obligation that you feel to spend a certain amount of time with family or, or home friends when you're really close to them. Yeah. You know, so I can see bit- that. That makes sense. But uh, you know, on the other hand, I, I always tell people that the, the best thing to look for when you're looking for a residency is to go somewhere where you feel like the people you're surrounded by, you want to be surrounded by and you feel supported by them and mm-hmm. that you have some sort of support system. Now you had a support system in your wife that moved with you, but a lot of people don't. And so, I mean, I think for those people, you know, I agree with you. If you live 45 minutes down the street from, from your family and your lifelong best friends, it might be a little bit difficult because for a lot of residency, you sort of drop off the map. And I think you're right. They probably would be offended by that. But like I, when I did residency, I was, I don't know, an hour and a half or so away from my, my in-laws at the time. And that was all right because they kind of understood that, you know, I'm not going to be available, but we could see them if we wanted to. And if we needed some help for something, they could come up and do it. So I, I think there's two sides to it, but I definitely could understand not wanting to live with or immediately next to your family. Well, and then it's perspectives really changed because then we had children. And when you have children, then you start to go, oh, we, we would really like to be close to family because family helps a ton when you have little kids. So yeah, I, I agree. Every support system is really important and phases of life change. But yeah, I think at every stage of your life, having um, a support system, whether it's one person or 20 people, you know, like that, I agree. I, I could never have done any of the things I've done in my life just by myself. No way. So when you went into pathology, did you know you were going to do forensics? No, I did not. I was open-minded. I was, I, you know, knew already that being as interested in sort of gross anatomy and just sort of as generally interested in biology and medicine as I was, that forensics would be a really good option um, if I enjoyed doing autopsies and enjoyed the career. Because as we talked about, forensic pathology is one of the things that I feel is really attractive about it and unique and just great being in it is that if it is something that you can see under the microscope, if it's that small, 
it's your purview. And if it's something that can be molecular and even, you know, just a laboratory test result, that's also your jurisdiction all the way up to the entire person's body. Anything that could have happened to that person in their life, whether it's, you know, the, the medicine, the streets, illicit drug use, violent crimes, um, traumatic deaths, poisons, just any and everything that can happen to a person's body really becomes something that we end up caring about as a forensic pathologist. And that was always really attractive to me. But at the same time, I wanted to be open-minded because it's like, well, maybe I'll really like hematopathology. Maybe I'll really get into, you know, the blood bank or maybe a neuropathology. There's a lot of different avenues you can take in pathology when you're in general pathology residency, APCP. So because there were so many open avenues, I wanted to be open-minded and, you know, just really let residency figure out for me what I was going to ultimately end up doing. So at some point you, you picked forensic pathology and I'm kind of curious. So you're from super small town, uh, North Dakota and you've, you know, spend a lot of time with the same people there. And your wife came to the, the big city with you when you moved off to residency. How did your friends and family and your wife react when you said, you know, I think I know what I want to do. I want to do autopsies. I think that I'm not quite sure. I don't really remember everybody's separate different reactions. I think that, you know, there's kind of an understanding when you're a doctor that you are, there's like a blood and guts aspect just to the medical field generally. Yeah. Even if you do other, anything, you know, if you're a nurse, if you're a uh, respiratory therapist, dealing with bodies and bodily fluids, I think always sort of permeates the idea of what people in the medical field do. So I, I don't remember there being a startling reaction that anybody had to me saying that I was a medical examiner doing autopsy. I, I mean, like you've talked about with some of your guests, the general reaction tends to be of interest in people thinking that that is a pretty cool thing to do uh, because generally people are interested in uh, whether it's media, um, CSI shows or uh, bones or any, any kind of the, forensic files, shows like that, true crime. I do think there's such a general interest in the field that when someone hears that you're going into it, it's a generally positive, uh, overall positive reactions with a few people who actually take the additional step to ask the questions like, you know, what's the craziest thing or the most disgusting thing? You know, some, some people actually ask those specific questions. But um, no, I, I agree with the other people who have said generally it's more of like a sort of a, an interest and a positivity about the, your choice of a career because people just generally think that it's interesting. So how do you answer those questions? Cause you're right. I get asked those questions all the time and it's kind of tricky, right? It's hard to answer. I guess it depends on who's asking me, <laughs> like how well I know them. If, if I know them well enough and if we're close enough, I might actually, you know, I might talk in very generic general, you know, without any idea identifying information about sure, certain yeah. cases I mean, that I've had that have been interesting uh, to me and why I found them interesting and just, you know, hope that it's something that, you know, the other, the other person might find to be interesting too. But uh, I do feel like a lot of the people who you don't have an especially close relationship with, or you feel like they're asking you, um, I don't really have the, the words for it, but out of a sort of morbid curiosity that I don't, 
really feel like telling specifics about cases. I, I feel like it's a, I feel like it maybe reduces my entire job or a lot of what I've dedicated my life to, to just uh, kind of morbid or obscene stories about people that I doesn't, you know, I don't really like that. I don't like kind of participating in that if I think that that's really the only thing that somebody cares about. Yeah, I totally get what you're saying. And, and I struggle with that too, because I, I do think, I mean, sure, there are weird people out there who, who have some sort of psych issue and, and, you know, that is what it is. But I think a lot of people, when they ask those questions, when they're asking what's the craziest thing or the most violent thing or the most gruesome thing, I, I, I think that the morbid curiosity is there because they want to um, sort of acclimatize their brain to the idea that these things can happen. I think it's the reason people watch horror movies. I think, I don't think they're doing it necessarily in a, inappropriate way. I think it's, it is just actual morbid curiosity. And so part of me thinks, you know, I can't really blame them for that. But on the other hand, I, I agree with you. I do think that it, it cheapens what we do a little bit. And I also think that it's overly reductive and more than anything, I think that sharing those stories in that way can be disrespectful to decedents. And, you know, I think all of us are professional enough to where we won't do that. And so when I answer those questions, I've gotten to a place where I, you know, I say that we, as part of the job, we do have to see terrible violence. You know, occasionally we will see, you know, horrible car accidents or dismemberings or, you know, actual homicides, whether with guns or knives or anything else. And that's not why I do the job. That's the job. That's the job I do. The reason why I do it is because it gives me a chance to answer a lot of questions and I get to use all this medical knowledge that I really love using. And I get to, you know, sort of a lot of when, when people die and especially when people die and they fall under our jurisdiction, it usually leaves families and sometimes law enforcement with a lot of questions and it's super gratifying to be able to answer. So when they ask me what is the coolest case, I tend to give ones that are, are not gruesome. It's ones where I was able to really find an answer, and especially ones where I was able to find an answer to a question that family members, I could tell they were holding on to it. And that feels really good. And so in exchange for that, I do have to tolerate the gruesome stuff, but I think we get a lot out of it. And so far, when I tell people when they ask for a cool case and I tell them that this is a cool case because I got to answer this question and I was able to find this thing, they seem pretty satisfied. And so I, I think that, you know, maybe that's just me giving credit where it's not due, but I, I think that a lot of times people are trying to understand why we love our job the way we do. No, that's all beautifully stated. And I think you're right. I think when people ask those questions, I think it might be just sort of a quick question and it is, it's showing that um, I think it is showing a, like a generous curiosity or interest in like, oh, tell me more about what you do. I mean, I'm fascinated by your life and your career and your profession. And it just comes out in the most kind of obvious, re reflexive way that it does. But yeah, I, I, I think that people, it comes from a really good place and it comes from a place of wanting to learn more about essentially what the world is like because yeah. we really see what the world is like more than a lot of people do who don't have access to the information and the photographs and images and, and things that we lay our eyes on every single day. You know, it's so funny. I, I now, think it comes from a good place. Now that you called it reflexive, that, that actually makes me think and compare it to something else that happens in my life personally all the time, 
which is that I ride a motorcycle and it, anyone who rides a motorcycle will tell you this. This is always true is whenever anyone sees your motorcycle, they will be like, Hey man, that's a super cool motorcycle. And then they will immediately follow it up with someone they know that has died on a motorcycle or some horrible crash on the motorcycle. And I think what it is, is it's the reflex of they, they know that we are experiencing something that they don't and they want to, sh- they want to be part of that. They want to understand, they want to share. They're just sort of like venting this, this deep fear. And I think when people hear that we do autopsies and we see murders, I think that their form of venting is, uh, what, tell me about that. Like, tell me a gross one. I, I think that mm-hmm. might be what it is. So I don't know. I struggle mm-hmm. with answering it, but I don't really judge the people that ask. But in case anyone out there ever has asked me and I've brushed it off, just understand that's why I'm not. It's not that I'm judging you. It's that I have a hard time coping with the right way to answer that. Yeah. And I, I think that that is probably true of maybe most of us that forensic pathologists have a hard time answering that question. And it's the question we all of us get asked, but I don't know what the, if there's a truly great response to that, if you're a real working forensic pathologist, I certainly don't feel like I have one. I'm always like, I, yeah, I agree with you. I'm always like a little bit thrown and, uh, uh, offset a little bit when someone asks me that question, even though I should, I should have like a canned response, but I still feel like I don't, I still feel like I'm making it up every time somebody asks me for that, that, reflexive type of question when they find out what I do. Yeah. I mean, I think canned responses are fine for the courtroom, but I think it's more fun to give an honest answer in the moment, you know, because that shows that you're going to give what answer has occurs to you in the moment. You change all the time. So I think that's fair. Um, I do want to ask, so it sounds like from your, your story. So you went to residency after med school. So did you go to one of the med schools that still does uh, you, you get a teaching cadaver when you first start and you and a group of a few people will do a, a generalized dissection and have, you have prosectors that walk around and, and show you things. Yes. It was just like that. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's pretty typical med school fair, but I, I think uh, there are a few med schools now who have transitioned their students, their, their first and second year med students to a digital autopsy, which I don't necessarily disagree with, but that's another topic. But that means unless something was very different with your school, that your first experience with autopsy of any kind, a true autopsy would have been in residency. What was that like? With the um, number and experience of autopsies I've done since the cadaveric experience of anatomy, gross anatomy, when you started medical school, it seems so foreign to me, honestly, in retrospect. Like, I don't remember, I wasn't overwhelmed with any feelings. I didn't faint. I know that there's stories like people fainting when they see their first autopsy or their first real anatomic dissection of, of, a, of a human. Um, I didn't have any overwhelming feelings like that. And, and actually it, it all kind of, it kind of repeats itself in a very particular way. So like when you do that cadaver experience in medical school and the first time that you see the body and then start to dissect the body, it, um, I feel like the environment is one you, you actually, if I'm remembering correctly, you have that 
bananas experience where they just like you went through a case of a particular patient and then they like open a door and they're like, this is that person. Oh my God. Yeah. Right? That is my story. That's what happened for me. I still think I that that was very I poorly handled. Believe what, I couldn't believe what I was listening to when you recounted that. Um, <laughs> that was not our experience. Well, good. Uh, it was much more traditional. Like, yes, like today you will be introduced to the people who have donated their bodies to be your educational cadavers. And, um, you know, as you probably remember, the, everything is, uh, their bodies are very fixed. Yeah. Um, the, it's They've all, all been embalmed. Tissue. They've all been embalmed. Right. Correct. So when you, when you do, there aren't the, the smell is one of like formalin and preservation. It's not right. the smell of any way that any person actually smells or even someone who started, whose body started to decompose a little bit and you find them in their house. It's not how that smells either. It's a very, um, scientific laboratory smell and even sight because the body doesn't look the same really at all to me when, once it's been embalmed or fixed or preserved in that way. Um, and like you, you, we opened up, you know, we make entered the body in the body cavities and there's like all this fluid that's not naturally there. It just didn't, it felt, uh, I felt very removed from the experience of like, this is a person. And so therefore I'm connecting with them as a person that was really different than when I did my first actual autopsy in a medical examiner's office, when they, you know, you, you get the body and the, and the body still has like clothing on where you open up a body bag and the person still has the clothes that they were wearing and they're not fixed. They look like a person much more than a a cadaver in a medical school does to me anyways. Wait, so was your first autopsy at a medical examiner's office? Uh, University of North Dakota. I did go out of my way in medical school to do a forensic pathology rotation. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Yep. Yep. So I, I got a sense because as other people uh, who you interviewed has talked have talked about, they don't really emphasize pathology as a clinical specialty or as a, as a specialty you can do as a physician in medical school. It's right. more emphasized as like the basic sciences part of it right. and the learning the basic pathology to apply to other medical fields. Like if you're going to be a surgeon or a neurologist or an internal medicine doctor, but then they kind of forget about us when they're doing the actual rotations. Um, like we had to do OBGYN, family medicine, pediatric, you know, all the, all the foundational, I guess you would call them specialties. But then I thought, you know, I think I might like, pathology. I want to, I at least want to try to get an experience in pathology to know whether I might like it or not. And knowing how diverse of a field it is and how much I generally like medicine, I thought I would really enjoy it. So I went out of my way to find rotations in hospital pathology, you know, looking at bio, a lot of biopsies and um, surgical pathology specimens and doing a little bit of the laboratory work in the hospital, but then as well as to get the medical examiner's office experience um, at the, the medical examiner's office that is affiliated with the University of North Dakota. So do you so remember that, that first that I had one? With the medical school I went to. Do you remember that first autopsy? Like, do you remember anything about what it was like, how it felt seeing it, being there? Yeah, that one I definitely got queasier and had like a, 
I didn't faint or anything, but I remember feeling a little bit of like an aura or a lightheadedness where it's like, oh man, like that again, just initially. Oh, oh, or you meant aura like, like is associated with a migraine. I thought you were talking about like a, you know, a spirit in the room. Like a, like a migraine thing. Yeah. 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 Like opening the body bag and seeing a person with clothes on who was dead. And like, that was a very different experience for me. And then that was almost relived when I started fellowship and I went to my first scene. Like my first scene, it was a really good, it was a really good first scene to go to because it wasn't complicated. It wasn't crazy. It was like as simple as any of the cases that we get in medical examiner's office um, because it was a sudden unexpected death of a young man with no medical history Hmm. who's just one morning is found dead in bed. So like never been diagnosed with anything, wasn't known to do drugs or illicit, illicit substances. Um, hadn't like, I think he had had very vague like medical complaints in the few days before he was just found dead in bed by his, by his spouse. Um, so that was the first scene I went to was just like the, uh, walk into a house and up to up the stairs to a bedroom. And they had, there was just a body on the ground that had been rolled off of his bed and tried to be resuscitated on the floor of the bedroom. Could not have been any less crazy but it was super duper emotional for me because like you're to get to the stairs, you like walk past the hallway that has like all the big family photos of this man with his wife and his kids. Um, and I, and I was a father by that point too. So like that was really like deeply impactful for me. Um, having all those thoughts of him as a person um, and then seeing it, not just like, it wasn't just like, Oh, we opened up a body bag and he still has his clothes on, you know, like that's like seeing him as, you know, that I, I think, I don't think I need to say anything else. Like that's a really deep moment for somebody who goes into this field that I think probably a lot of us have had. Does that still get to you? Do you still, do you find that like, is that a really emotionally challenging for you still? You know, I never really went to another scene that was quite like that. I went to a lot more scenes that had more unusual circumstances or suspicious circumstances or were different in more of a, you had to use more forensic thinking uh, aspect. But I never had another scene in my fellowship, and I haven't been to one since, where it was so, I think the combination of it being such a benign scene with all of the the family there, the family actively grie- grieving while you're in the house. Um, I believe the man's, uh, the his spouse's parents were in the house at the same time as well, like mm. fielding their questions, seeing them actively grieving, seeing the pictures. I've never had one that was like that. I think a lot of times when you go to the scenes that are more unusual, there's more that takes you, again, uh, maybe because my life experience is not one of, uh, I'm pretty boring. I haven't like, I've never done cocaine. I've never done like a, a bunch of the weird, <laughs> You've never done cocaine. How boring. Of, they, I know. Right. I, <laughs> they, we see that are the reasons, like the reasons why, um, the way that I like to phrase it is like certain things, if you do them and people know that you do them in your life, they'll buy you an autopsy at the medical examiner's office. One of those things, is doing coke. Like 
if, if, so if we find out that you did coke, that'll buy you an autopsy at the medical examiner's office. Um, hey, just out of like interest, I, since I, you brought it up, how long ago does someone have to stop using cocaine before that rule no longer applies? Like if they did cocaine in the seventies, but have not done it since, would you, would you still? That's a great question. And a, and a point of maximum contention amongst medical examiners. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You get us in a, you get us in a bar and you get, you know, a beer in all of our hands. Cause some people will say if they've ever done it, I think they're still doing it. And you know, I think those people are on pretty firm ground. I, 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 I do. But then you get other people. It's like if they did, you know, when they were in their twenties and now they're 70, it's kind of like, I, they're probably not still doing it or I'm going to take them at their word or I don't care if someone in their seventies who's used Coke their entire life just happened to die. And they, and they, they turn up positive for cocaine on their talks. Like I don't care enough to find that and make this something that the public is going to pay for. And that the, you know, to flip a manner, I, I think that there's some of that out there too. Personally. Um, that's why I think it's nice at this point in my career not to be the chief of a medical examiner's office. Cause I kind of feel like that's a little bit of a, a chief issue that I'm happy for the moment to defer to someone more experienced than I am. But, uh, there, there was one particular medical examiner who I trained with who kind of was like, he, he was super good. He is a super good medical examiner, forensic pathologist. He's super suspicious. And man, if he doesn't catch people, you know, like, if, if the scene sounds even a little bit off, like I remember, I remember one time this, this story was like, Oh, this guy has a history of like heart disease, like enough heart disease. That, and he was old enough. He was like in his fifties or sixties. And the story was that like, he went up to get a drink of water in the middle of his night in the middle of the night. And then his wife finds him in the bathroom, I think or maybe in the living room or in the basement, like not in the bedroom. He gets up in the middle of the night, goes to get a drink of water, and then his wife finds him dead. There's no history that he uses drugs and he has heart disease. And this particular medical examiner was like, bring him in. <laughs> Why is he? I, he found it weird that he would like go to it, wouldn't just go to the bathroom that was like attached to their bedroom to get his drink of water and then just go right back to bed. He was like, why is he getting up to get a drink of water but going to a different part of the house? And he, the guy had like fentanyl and Coke and xylazine and like his talks was full of crap. <laughs> and he, I, it was, it was like, it's one of those moments, like kind of like I talked about in, um, in my talk that I gave a name. But when you start earlier in your career, career as a forensic pathologist, your attendings can just pull this magic. And you're like, what did you see? Like, how do you see through these people's skin and how do you see through these people's stories to like read between the lines to pick out? And I mean, you're not always, sometimes that's really going to be nothing, but you know, he, people with enough experience, they just pick up on the smallest little things that they think are a little bit suspicious or not right. I think I, I want to bring this one in. I just don't feel right about it. And with a certain degree of frequency, they'll hit and it's just a marvel to behold. Yeah. You know, it's so funny you say it that way because I, I remember so clearly believing that, how do I want to say this? Like 
I think it's so impressive when you see someone who's so good at their field in medicine that you're not good at yet, that it does come off as magic. I remember when I was in medical school and we had our small groups and we had a mentor or whatever the word for it was, some practicing doctor agreed to come on a weekly basis and talk to the medical, like a group of four or five of us for an outer time. And, and ours was a guy named Larry Beskind and he was an emergency room doctor and uh, Dr. Beskind would walk us through cases and he'd say, okay, here's a case presentation. This is a 45 year old woman who has, you know, nausea and vomiting and some abdominal pain and that's it. That's what he would give us. And then we'd all kind of using the best we could, we'd come up with how you should work her up and what the possibilities are. And then off the top of his head, he'd say, okay, well, what about this and this and this and this and this? And it came like, how could you possibly know all this stuff? I said, well, what, how could we tell the difference? He said, well, you can tell these two apart from this and you can tell these two apart from this. And then if you do this test, you can eliminate five of these and you should not forget about this. And, and it just, it felt like impossible, you know, and that's, that's happened. But it happened back when I was in the ER, it would happen with my senior residents all the time where I would see someone and be like, I, you know, I mean, granted, I got better at it over time. I don't want to say that I was a bad ER doctor, but when I was first starting, you know, you walk into a room and you go, I, you know, this guy might be full of shit. I don't think anything's going on. And then the senior resident or the attending will walk in and just be like, this person is sick. And within an hour they would code and you just go, how, how can you tell? What is it that you're seeing? Because we look at the same guy, but somehow you, you see something else. And like your, your staff, they, they heard the same story you did, but something about it just didn't feel right to them. And I agree that it feels like magic and it's so cool. And I'm getting there. I mean, I don't have the experience yet to, to seem like magic to my colleagues, but man, I can seem like magic to some medical students sometimes. Yes, 100%. It's great to be at that point in our careers where we can at least look a little bit magical to somebody. And I feel like I've hit that point too, where if it's a, if it's a medical student, like I can, you know, I get, I, I, it's fun to see the same reactions in them as the reactions that I know that I've had in front of other doctors before. Like I know I reacted that exact same way to someone when I thought that they were really smart and amazing at what they did and did even once get like that reaction from a medical student, it's just a super gratifying part of the job. And another reason why being a medical examiner is great because forensic pathologists usually do a lot of teaching and education because there aren't that many places where that conduct autopsies and that can, you know, you can really, you've talked about it before, but the, the sensation of actually feeling a heart or a brain in your hand and touching it and seeing the pathology with your own eyes, is so um, such a great educational experience that everybody kind of agrees. They're like, oh yeah, can we get this medical student into this place so they can see an autopsy? That'd be really great for them. And it is. And so um, I, I think that teaching aspect is another great part of being a medical examiner too. I feel like it's so much fun. I never realized how much fun I would have teaching until I started teaching something I actually enjoyed. <laughs> you know, I've tried being a, a TA and stuff like that in the past and it was always a job. But I really do like when I have students now because I get to to sort of share the excitement about some interesting findings or about what we're looking for and 
talk about differential diagnoses and, and how we're going to prove, you know, whether if we're looking for it, how we can prove that we found it, that kind of stuff. I feel like it's really fun. It's a really fun job. I've never had as much fun at any job as I have being a forensic pathologist and doing autopsies and investigating death. And I, I think that as a piece of, you know, if I have any guidance or like try to come up with words of wisdom and I kind of alluded to it a little bit with the way that I've always felt like I've just tried to um, do things that I enjoy or like, or, you know, try without getting super focused on what the end result is going to be. Cause, because I feel like if you try to do things that you really enjoy and love, that makes you so much better at that task or that job. I think that um, you, like, you know, when something that you're trying to do is the right thing for you, whether it's a, if it's a hobby or if it's a profession, a career, um, if when you're doing it, like when you're doing it, you just feel like you are more patient. You're listening more. Um, you are, you're kinder, you know, you're not angry or bitter or doing things in a resentful way. It's like you, you really want to do a good job. It's something you feel tied or invested to what your end product. Like if you let those thoughts and feelings and guide you, um, I just feel like you're going to end up doing something eventually that you really like and that you have fun at the work and, you know, you just love the work. It's really love is the feeling. Like um, when you're doing something that you love, you just, you feel so much more patient and open and like you're a kinder person when you're doing the job. And that's what forensic pathology feels like to me. So, you know, I, I've always let those feelings kind of guide me and it's worked because I really, I really enjoy the work that we do. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm with you in that. I really enjoy it. But something I always ask is, is there any part of this job that has changed the way that you live? Like, are there any things that you won't do? Cause you now know more about it because of the job or are there, you know, things you won't let your children do something like that. Anyways, this job has changed you. I knew you were going to ask me this. So <laughs> the one thing that I thought about, the only thing I can, can think of that's tangibly been like, Oh, because of something I've seen at work or I know I've, that has really changed my behavior um, would be like, Patrick Hansman's story about like how he puts his car in park. If his kids ever run in the driver while he's driving the car, like that really struck me. Um, like uh, we are parents to an infant right now, a five month old. And I was watching her the other day and she must've been really tired because she just like was playing and she just went to sleep on the floor. But it was, uh, it was on this kind of playpen setup thing that's got like a two a singing toucan at the top but then it's a soft surface on the bottom it's not a blanket but it's like kind of a soft fabric okay and that's what she fell asleep on and she fell asleep on it face down uh, and i, I wanted to let her sleep right but that entire time that she was napping i was like watching her chest to make sure it was going up and down you know like we as medical examiners, one of the most, again, back to how I started this interview, sudden unexplained death of infants and children. All of us see a lot of unexplained infant deaths. Just we get all of them. So even though it's not common, we see every single one of them. Yeah. And we do, and we put in so much work 
to prove that it's nothing else. And they're so unsatisfying because at the end you just have nothing. And you're like, I don't know why this infant is, is, is dead. And they end up being very descriptive types of reports and, you know, people who are at higher levels than us try to put together all the data and figure out if they can find anything. One of the biggest ones is like a few unsafe sleep conditions, including prone sleep and sleeping on soft surfaces. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I was like, I'm going to let, I want to let you sleep, but I'm basically going to be watching your chest the entire time to make sure that you don't stop breathing. And I know that that wouldn't be the case if I weren't a medical examiner. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Honestly, as you were telling that story, I could tell where you were going with it. Cause I started hearing, you know, I, the, the alarm bells were ringing for me too. So I, I also feel like because I'm not a parent, I, I was thinking, well, why don't you just turn her over? But I, then you said, well, I wanted to let her sleep. And so I guess I can see both sides. So yeah, that girl needs to sleep more. She's going through a regression and it's been tough. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sorry for that. Tell me, um, so it's okay. This is, this has been, this has been a little bit less structured than usual, but I feel like we got to talk about a lot of cool stuff and I think a lot of people appreciate it because we went a little bit more into the specifics of the job than I usually do. But because as always, this is a little bit of a, you know, harsh topic. We talk a lot about death. I think that it's fun to talk a little bit about some lighter topics or we'll see. So if you weren't a medical examiner, do you know what you would want to do both in medicine and outside of medicine? In medicine, I've always thought it would be kind of cool. I don't really know that much about the job. I tried to get a shadowing experience in it when I was in medical school, but it wasn't really that enlightening. I think it'd be cool to be a PMR doc, a physical medicine rehabilitation doctor, because I mean, at one point I was pre-physical therapy and I, I, this could be completely off base, but it almost seems to me that a physical medicine rehabilitation physician is like the doctor version of a physical therapist. Um, and I'm still interested in, you know, like, and I'm not that interested in forensic anthropology, but I do like, I still like skeletal things. Um, and I like the idea that you're use, you're using a lot of inf- information about um, nerves and how nerves kind of regenerate and their interaction with how people move and like movements that I, that I thought that within medicine, that would be a cool type of doctor to be. Mm-hmm. And then outside of medicine, I mean, shoot for the stars, right? I mean, like at one time I obviously admitted to myself and to the world that I thought it'd be pretty cool to be a stand up comedian. And I still think that I, I love, I love ever being able to make somebody laugh. I just feel it, you know, making somebody laugh is one of the best feelings in the entire world that a person can have. So, I mean, I think being a, a, a successful stand-up comedian that could make a living that way would be really, really cool. But awesome. I'm like you, I wasn't good enough. So I'm now <laughs> I'm doing something else. Yeah. Well, you weren't good enough yet. And the same goes for me. I, I bet we could have been good, but we, we went a different route on that note. That is true. That is true. It takes a long time to become one of those people. And uh, the other thing I've heard that I think is interesting about it is because it applies to you and me we always had things in the back of our mind. We were like, if this doesn't work out, I could do something else. We both ended up being doctors, but I've heard the people who are really make it and stand up. Like they think if they don't become successful stand up comedians, 
they will just waste away and die in a gutter somewhere. Like they have no fallback. They're all in. When you have the, the idea in the back of your mind, like if it doesn't work, I'll do something else. You're not going to end up being a stand up comic as a career. I've always thought that's really interesting. And I always feel like, I kind of feel like it's true. Um, so sorry, I'm rambling, but yeah, just some more thoughts. No, that's fine. I, I don't know if that's true. I don't know all comedians backstory and what their backups were, but certainly for me, I decided that if I was going to work that hard at something, I wanted a guaranteed income. <laughs> and so that's sort of how I ended up walking away. Amen. Uh, tell me about this is, this is the last question. This seems to be the one that's hardest for everybody. So can you tell me about a time in your life, whether it's related to being a doctor or not, that made you laugh really hard? I'm not asking you to tell me a joke and I'm not asking you to make me laugh at all. I just want to hear about a time that you laughed really hard. It's not hard for me because I prepared and I have (laughs) hearkening back to Ray High School. And I only thought about this because I was listening to your episode with Dr. Amanda Hirsch and Amanda used the word um, enamored and it triggered this memory I have from high school where uh, I was Mrs. Dolan, Mrs. Michelle Dolan in math class. I was like, uh, you know, I was trying to be smarter than I was and trying to use fancy words. I don't remember why, but I was like, man, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Dolan, I'm just, I can't get this. I'm just enamored with this math problem. And she's like, <laughs> you're in love with it. <laughs> yeah. And the way she said it, yeah, you appreciate the comedic timing, but he was like, you're in love with it. Like that doesn't, you're in love with a math problem. Uh, and, it's, and by the way, you're talking, it sounds like you hate it. So, yeah, <laughs> that's the memory when Amanda used the word enamored. And now I will, for the rest of my life, I've forgotten the definitions of a lot of words that I studied thinking I was going to use them in conversation and be like really like spot on sound, interesting and smart and funny. I've forgotten like 95% of the definitions and what those words are, but I will never forget what he hammered <laughs> means. Well, Dylan, thank you so much, man. This has been super fun. I really appreciate it. I especially appreciate that you gave me a ton of compliments. That was really nice of you, but I think that the, the podcast went really well. Um, do you have any pearls or any things that you want to share? Just last minute things. Uh, typically the people who listen are, are pre-med or occasionally med students or at the very least they're interested in what we do. Any, anything you want to add? I'll do my little plug. If you like uh, the idea of being a medical examiner and you're interested in content related to forensic pathology, um, there's a TikTok for the National Association of Medical Examiners and um, they've got some pretty good videos. They've got this guy who does toxicology jeopardy. (laughs) And um, I think they're pretty good. You should check them out. Yeah, I agree. So just in case it wasn't clear, Dylan does those videos and they are excellent. You definitely should check it out. Um, And uh, do you have any social media that you want to share with people? Um, Probably just, probably just that name TikTok page for the social media. All right. Well, I will, I'll drop the links for the name TikTok and um, I'm, at the forensic MD on all platforms. And so, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about what it's been like for you becoming a medical examiner. 
And yeah, if anyone has any interest in becoming a medical examiner, what it's like, more about the job, you can go to, uh, there's a Reddit. It's a subreddit. It's reddit.com slash r slash forensic pathology. And there's some sticky posts at the top that talk about, you know, what are the steps to becoming a medical examiner? There's also a lot of people on there that are medical examiners that would be happy to answer some questions. If you're interested in forensics, but you don't necessarily want to go to medical school and become a forensic pathologist, you just want to be part of the forensic world. I also recommend checking out the subreddit for forensics, which is just reddit.com slash r slash forensics. There's a ton of forensic related professions and there's lots of helpful people there. If you're interested in checking out the National Association of Medical Examiners, uh, you can go to their website at thename.org. That's T-H-E-N-A-M-E dot org. And there's lots of educational materials. There's information about what it's like to be a medical examiner and how to do it. And there's also places there if you want to hire a a forensic pathologist for any private cases or anything like that. But in the meantime, I'm going to get back to it. And thanks again, Dylan. I appreciate it. See you next time on Becoming a Medical Examiner.